Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're a returning listener, uh, you're in for a good one. I'm Jeffrey Clark with Lucas Mitzel virtually. And Lucas, where do we start with this one? There is a lot to unpack in this one. This is going to be one of the craziest episodes we've done. And we've had some crazy ones so far. I mean... I don't think we're going to be quite to our longest episode that we had in 1919 quite yet. And we've had some crazy ones. I think of, you know, the 1924 and even the 1925 editions to some extent as well. This series in terms of competitiveness does not come anywhere close to that. But in terms of storylines, I would say it might even surpass that. Absolutely, and I would also say that not since that 1990 episode have I been looking forward to an episode like this one. That's a fair point. So, I guess the best way to start this is to talk about the incumbent power in baseball, the New York Yankees, going 107-47 to win the American League pennant. Really, the last run with this group because Babe Ruth is still around, but you know this will be his last great year in baseball, really. He's coming into his 10th World Series. He was 37 years old at this point, hit 341, had 120 runs, 137 RBIs, led baseball with 130 walks. The Babe actually did not lead the American League in home runs because Jimmy Fox won the Triple Crown for Philadelphia. Then you have Earl Coombs, who was arguably the greatest leadoff hitter of the 20s, having his last big year as well, hitting 321 and scoring 143 runs. You have Ben Chapman stealing 38 bases, 41 doubles, 15 triples, 10 homers. On the pitching side, you've got Lefty Gomez and Red Ruffing combining for 42 wins. Ruffing was the runner up to Lefty Grove and ERA at 3.09. And then you have Johnny Allen, 26 years old, going 17-4 to lead the AL in winning percentage. Lou Gehrig hitting 349 to be second in baseball, tied for second in RBIs with 151, and fourth in home runs with 34. So really nothing out of the ordinary for the Bronx Bombers. Yeah, it's kind of a ho-hum. It's been a few years because we had that little dominant three-year stretch by the Philadelphia Athletics who have since torn their team down a little bit. The one guy whose name is going to come up a little bit in this episode is Cubs Mark Koenig, who is a former Yankee. You may remember him from some of the earlier Yankee runs. He was a part of the Murderer's Row team and then was a part of the team that repeated the following year the shortstop for the Yankees at the time. You know, we'll get into him a little bit because there's storylines there. I look at this, and you mentioned Earl Combs as the leadoff guy, and it's a little surprising to see him only stealing three bases. But when you're hitting 321 and have an OPS of 860, really, as long as you're getting on base with the guys hitting behind you, you're going to be fine. And on top of all that, the Yankees lost only 15 games at home that year. So Yankee Stadium really was a safe haven for the Bronx Bombers. Not that they needed it. Yeah, I mean, when you score 1,002 runs on the season... You're doing something right, and it doesn't matter a ton where you're playing. So let's go to a very volatile Chicago Cubs National League pennant winner. I say volatile because they had quite 
the controversy during the season. In fact, they had a number of controversies. They were sputtering by midseason. Rogers Hornsby was hitting up the players for money two-thirds of the way through the season. Philip Wrigley had to fire him, and everybody except the six or so players to whom he owed an estimated $10,000, Hornsby that is, was happy about it. The new manager was first baseman Charlie Grimm. Unlike Hornsby, he never admonished a player in public as Hornsby was prone to do. Yeah, if the team played poorly, Grimm would just shrug and remind everyone that there was another game to play the next day. It works. The Cubs rallied past the Dodgers and the Pirates to win the National League pennants by four games. Hornsby getting in that tip with management may have been the best thing to happen to the Cubs that year. The home run attack of the Cubs had disappeared along with Hornsby and Hack Wilson, who had been shipped off to Brooklyn before the season. You remember him from earlier. Rookie second baseman Billy Herman was the big offensive player for them. He scored a team-high 102 runs, and our old friend Kai Kai Kyler is hitting for the Cubs, as is Rick Stevenson. Stevenson, he hit 324 with 49 doubles. He was third in the NL behind Paul Wehner, and he had 62, and Chuck Klein had 50. Uh, the pitching, however, was a big story for them as well. A 3.44 ERA on the strength of Lon Warnecke. He was the NL wins leader with 22 against only six losses. And Warnake also won the ERA title, 2.37. Guy Bush won 19-11. Charlie Root won 15-10. Pat Malone, 15-17. So, very crazy one-loss record. Very talented team, but a lot of craziness going on during the course of this National League pennant win. Obviously, there's something here, and there's talent. But chemistry matters as well. And you know, obviously they were able to get away with it in the regular season. It's just a question of how long can you get away with it now going into this best of seven with a team that has a championship pedigree. And we should mention the two former Yankee connections on... Okay, it goes both ways, actually. Joe McCarthy, he led the Cubs to the pens as manager in 1929, but he was unceremoniously let go, as we recall a few episodes back, and now he's managing the Yankees. And then our good friend, Mr. Keenig, whom you mentioned, the Cubs picked him up during the season, but there was controversy. I don't know why the Yankees took this so personally, because he wasn't one of them anymore, but the Cubs decided to only give him half a series share. I don't know, maybe Keenig demanded too much respect from his former Yankee teammates, but however the Yankees got wind of this, they were not happy about it. Yeah, and that's the thing that I don't get. I mean, he hit 353 for the season, you know, so that was in 33 games, a fairly small sample size, but that's really good. He played his usual good defense. I don't know, there was uh, mention of some injury to Koenig here as well and I don't know if maybe that had something to do with it so I don't I don't know if this is just a matter of players sticking up for one of their own because you know you remember Koenig was a part of those 1927 and 1928 championship teams maybe that there's still some semblance of loyalty there I don't know but whatever the case now you've got something brewing here under the surface between that and the Joe McCarthy thing and just you're gonna see this really come to a head here fairly quickly yeah, and the Yankees wasted no time throwing insults towards the Cubs for being so cheap towards Keenan, who, by the way, was a Pacific Coast League call-up. 
very solid during the 37-18 finish. That grim guy, the Cubs, too. Babe Ruth shouted, hey, Mark, who are those cheapskates you're with? And that was only the beginning because these teams were just hollering insults at each other, catcalling all throughout the series. Of course, Ruth was the main target of the Cubs. Billy Herman remembered later on, once all that yelling starts back and forth, it's hard to stop it. And of course, the longer it goes on, the nastier it gets. What were jokes in the first game became personal insults by the third game. So imagine being one of these players, and you have to think that somehow it's all going to come to a head, but it all comes to a head in a way that is still remembered greatly to this day, and we'll get into that in due time. Yeah, we will get to that, but just with some of the retaliation that they came up with was they called Babe Ruth fat. Okay, fair point. They called him washed up. He's 37, but is still a super dangerous hitter, so I don't know that you want to do that. But as we'll get to in Game 1, the Cubs just go completely and utterly over the line, and apparently this was a common trash talk thing at the time and so okay you know i bear in mind that this is 1932 and by the standards of 1932 this is okay and you know 90 years out is you know maybe a little bit different but even considering ruth is a white guy why in god's name would you be dropping an n-bomb on him it's appalling I can't really give you a fair answer to that. I feel like that when you're desperate to get in someone's head by Amy's necessary, you'll pull out all the stops. And like you said, a certain word that we're not going to say here uh, was obviously much more common then than it is today. People still use it, unfortunately, but it's much less acceptable to use it today but of course we're still 15 years away from Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier so they're probably not thinking anything oh you know this isn't uh hurting anybody like why does it matter I mean we're all white here so who cares yeah you know we're 15 years away from the color barrier being broken but even then we're still another 10 15 20 years beyond that of even approaching anything close to acceptable civil rights stuff but that's you know we're, we're getting off topic let's leave it at some things were said that went completely over the line and are completely unacceptable well i want to skip right to game three because the yankees won the first two games pretty easily 12 to 6 and 5 to 2 respectively is it fair that we just uh gloss over those games let's at least touch on them a little bit here you know kind of quick rundown in game one the cubs were able to Get out to a pretty good start. Strung some hits together. Woody English driving home the series first run. Uh, Riggs Stevenson driving him in. So a couple runs off of Red Ruffing to open the game. And then Guy Bush comes out. Retires the first nine guys he faces. So it seems like everything is going okay. And then the other shoe drops. You have a leadoff walk in the bottom of the fourth by Earl Combs. After a ground out, Babe Ruth singles Combs home and then Lou Gehrig lines a shot deep to right field for a home run the Yankees lead three to two the Bombers end up putting up another five runs on two hits in the bottom of the sixth go on to win game one by that 12 to 6 final on just eight hits mind you game two a little less lopsided but pretty much more of the same 
You have, once again, the Cubs opening the scoring. They get a run in the top of the first, a sacrifice fly by Riggs Stevenson that comes on an unearned run after an error by Yankee shortstop Frankie Crisetti. Drink. But the Yankees end up coming back. They get two runs in the bottom half of the first. Lou Gehrig tying the game with an RBI single. Bill Dickey giving the Yankees the lead with two outs. The Cubs end up tying it in the top of the third. Frank DeMary with an RBI single. But then the Yankees again get that run right back. Ben Chapman singling Ruth and Gehrig home makes it 4-2. to two. They tack on some insurance in the fifth and hold a 5-2 to two lead to take game two. They win both games in the Bronx. So yeah, let's go ahead and get to game three now. Game three at Wrigley Field. The official attendance for this game, 49,986. I'm sure there were a couple thousand more surrounding the ballpark. Hey, if they did in 2016, I'm sure they did in 1932. Oh, 100%. So Babe Ruth immediately becomes the ire for Cubs fans for reasons. They throw lemons at him while he's shagging flies before the game. I mean, already that's uncalled for. He answered the jeers quickly, though, with a three-run homer in the first inning. Also of note, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who is the Democratic presidential nominee at this point, he was in attendance at this game. Top of the first, the Yankees have put two men on. Ruth smiled, and he hit that 2-0 pitch deep into the right center field stands. That's exactly what happened specifically, anyway. But the Cubs, of course, came back. You know, in the fourth inning, they tied the game at four. And then we get into the fifth inning. The fans are still heckling him. The players are calling him that word that we're not going to repeat here. Charlie Root is pitching for the Cubs. First pitch that Root throws is a called strike. And he holds up a single finger, Babe Ruth does, as if to say, hey, that's only one strike. And then there were two balls, and then there was another called strike, and the Cubs kept on hollering at him, especially Guy Bush, who was idle, and he ran several feet out from the dugout to heckle Ruth, which I have no idea why anyone would allow that today. I'm pretty sure if that happened today, that would easily be a suspension and a fine. Oh, yeah, 100%. And as much crap as umpires get for making the game be about them in a situation like that you absolutely have to shut that down from the outset so let's talk about what happens next it varies he holds out two fingers as if to signify there's two strikes gabby hartsnitz the cubs catcher who's obviously the closest person to him at that moment he claims that ruth said it only takes one to hit it Lou Gehrig, who was on deck, obviously, later claims they heard Ruth say, I'm going to knock the next pitch right down your goddamned throat. But whatever happened, he did hit the next pitch deep into the center field bleachers for one of the longest and loudest home runs ever hit at Wrigley Field. And he rounded the bases laughing, and he made more gestures towards the now silent Cubs dugout, as if to say, "Yo, don't ever challenge me again because I'm Babe Ruth and I could do whatever I want. So here is where things get really complicated. After the game, Roof denied that he actually called his shot, but 
then the media was picking up on it because I don't think they were actually told what was going on during that bet. They just ran with it. And as soon as Ruth heard about that, he decided to run with it too. That's when he gave that famous speech, you all. Well, the good Lord must have been with me, they said years later. And like I promised, here is where my going to grad school pays off. I got my master's degree at DePaul. The very first time I sat in on a class, it was before I was officially enrolled as a student. And that class just so happened to be a sports class. Uh, well, it was a general uh, journalism class, but that particular class had to do with sports. So lucky me, right? Yeah. So... One of the videos that the then head of the journalism department shows is a video they recorded in the 90s that showed a home video that somebody had brought to this game. They were shooting at that particular moment. Cause, I mean, first of all, it's Babe Ruth. Why would you not film him? And secondly, it provided the only known video angle of this shot and here is what i saw you know maybe you've seen pictures of it lucas but i have seen the video for myself and you know it's the old 16 millimeter camera so you kind of have to uh use your imagination a little bit as to how fast or how slow everything was moving but what happens is you see ruth point once go back twice go back so maybe he was just pointing at root a couple of times but what happened was you know points once twice and then goes back into his hitting motion just really quickly like that probably not enough time to say you know i'm gonna hit the next pitch ball right past the flagpole but i know the professor said that there were disagreements within the department about whether he actually called his shot i forget which one said he did call a shot he didn't call his shot but the question still remains you know did he do it did babe ruth actually call a shot for his final world series home run i don't think we're ever gonna get a clear answer to this no we we never will and i think that's part of what makes this so interesting is all of the mystery that surrounds it and you have all of the storyline that leads up to it and obviously like i knew a little bit prior to researching for this episode about you know it was kind of a contested and feisty serious to some extent obviously not to the degree that we discovered was the case but you know just all of that all of the baggage and the background and the feistiness and ruth being ruth and you get this majestic home run that is the stuff of legend and it's amazing thinking back on all of our prior episodes with babe ruth of all of these stories and a lot of them seem to be happening on the road you know the monster shots at sportsman's park when they were playing the cardinals and now you have this one at wrigley that is the stuff of legend i went i brought this uh out of my basement and unfortunately you know this is just audio recording but i went to a cubs game in 2014 it was the 100th anniversary of wrigley field and they were doing on various home games throughout the year they were doing like themed bobbleheads throughout the decade so i went to a game i think it was early to mid may and on that one it happened to be for the 1930s and they had painted the marquee that you're for those of you familiar you know the red marquee that sits on the facade of wrigley field at the corner of clark and addison they had painted it that shade of green that you're familiar with seeing on the scoreboard out in center field so you had that but the giveaway was bobbleheads and the bobblehead for the 1930s was of babe ruth pointing out towards center field 
So I have that. It normally hangs up in the basement, but I figured I would bring it out for this particular episode because this is a moment in baseball history. Two things about that. First of all, I hope somebody actually put that bobblehead right next to home plate at Wrigley Field for purposes. I'd have to assume so. And second, I was actually at that series. I was at the last game of that series, I know, because that was Jeter's last game at Wrigley Field, and I just so happened to be invited to that particular game. So our paths uh, kind of crossed, but obviously we didn't know that at that point. And I know they were not giving away that bottle hat and the particular game that I was at. I don't remember if the Yankees were uh, there for that particular series or not. It was a random day in May, and I think they were kind of going through. And so, you know, earlier in the year, they had done bobbleheads for the 10s and then the 20s and now the 30s and then I don't even remember what the rest of the series of bobbleheads were but it was just happened to be there for oh it's you know Babe Ruth calling a shot bobblehead day okay so let's talk about some of the other uh, accounts of this event from the writers of the day and the figures of the day when Herman was asked about this nearly 50 years after the fact he said don't kid yourself and Root said, if he had, I would have knocked him on his ass with the next pitch. And, you know, initially it was a non-story. Um, most newspaper accounts said there was nothing unusual about it. Uh, the Spalding Guide, when they reviewed the series, it didn't make any mention of the called shot. But there were some sports writers who reported in their game stories that Ruth had called his shot. Although only Joe Williams of the New York World's Telegram specifically said that he pointed towards the center field bleachers. Lou Gehrig bought into it enthusiastically, declaring they had called the shot. Joe McCarthy stayed neutral, saying, I'm not going to say he didn't do it. Maybe I didn't see him. Maybe I was looking the other way. Anyway, I'm not going to say he didn't do it. And Ruth himself was coy. And he said, it's all in the papers, isn't it? You know, the source I have talks about that whole movie, saying it was inconclusive. What probably happened was something like the scenario that Ruth's biographer, Robert Kramer, uh, he believes that Ruth did not specifically point towards the bleachers, but that with all of his gestures and bravado, he did, in some fashion, call that shot. But whatever happened, the series was pretty much done by that. Luke Gehrig actually fouled out another home run. Of course, nobody talks about that. The Yankees win that by a score of 7-5. And it's just too bad that everything else that happened this game in this series is forgotten because of this. A couple more eyewitness accounts from this one. Uh, the Cubs public address announcer Pat Piper at the time said, don't let anybody tell you differently. Babe definitely pointed, and I guess at the time the uh, PA announcer sat next to the wall separating the field from the stand, so he was on the third base side. He told the Chicago Tribune in 1966, um, Pat remembers sitting on the third base side and hearing Cubs pitcher Guy Bush chide Ruth, who had taken two strikes. According to Pat, Ruth told Bush that strike two, all right, but watch this. Then Ruth pointed to center field and hit his homer. So Pat mentioned, you bet your life, Babe Ruth called it. Um, Associate Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens said, my dad took me to see the World Series and we were sitting behind third base, not too far back. Ruth did point to the center field scoreboard, and he did hit the ball out of the park after he pointed with his bat. So it really happened. Uh, Lou Gehrig's comments on it, according to uh, Baseball Almanacs, Lou Gehrig quotes, What do you think of the nerve of that big monkey? Imagine the guy calling his shot and getting away with it. Kennesaw Mountain Landis was there and never commented on it, but his nephew 
was there, and the nephew believes that Ruth did not call it. So just a few more kind of anecdotes about this play. And yeah, I mean, especially just looking at the final score of game four, really this whole called shot is, I think it truly encapsulates the entire series in a nutshell. We'll get to game four in just a moment. I just, I just wanted to mention a few other things that happened prior to the called shot. Ruth said he was called things like Big Belly and Baboon. And then before the called shot, he fell as he was trying to handle a shoestring catch, very sloppily handling it at that, and Cubs fans were getting on his case for that. All he did was doff his cap in response, as if to say, something's coming and you're not going to be happy about it. It's another one of those, like, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times over the course of this podcast, is, like, sport is the ultimate reality thing where you have all of these things, if you were to write them for a movie, it would get thrown in the trash because you would say there's no way it would happen like this and yet pretty much every time it happens as if it were a super cheesy movie it's amazing so we go to game four pretty much anticlimactic at this point the cubs to their credit did put up more of a fight offensively in this one but it really didn't matter because the yankees were going to win this game anyway and that they did they win it by a score of 13 to 6. Both teams combined for five errors in this game, just like they did in game three. We have a flip in the errors. It was four on the Cubs in game three. This one, it was the Yankees with the four errors. Drink. So the Yankees win the World Series. Luke Garrick was actually the best player in this series. He had 529, three home runs. Nine runs scored, eight RBIs, a 1.118 slugging percentage. Best of Ruth in everything, but because the media is always the one to vote on World Series MVP, and because all they talked about was Ruth, I don't think there's any question that Ruth would have won World Series MVP had it been given out as much of a travesty as that would have been. I mean, it's just... Because, yeah, three home runs by Gehrig to the two for Ruth including the one that is talked about into perpetuity. The storyline, I get it. It makes sense. It is a travesty 100%, but I get it in terms of why it would have been decided that way. Also, if this had taken place in the modern day, the memes, man. Yeah. But, you know, all was not lost for Chicago baseball that year because the Chicago American Giants won the Negro League Championship Series over the Nashville Elite Giants. So, at least there are some people in Chicago who are happy, and I hope that the celebratory move for that was not limited to the African American community. But I'm just guessing out of the blue here that that probably was not the case. Yeah. Maybe this can be a spinoff podcast after we're done with this as we go back and look at some of the Negro League ones, at least what we can, because that's, you know, I went to go in looking at this, realizing, you know, oh, hey, this is Babe Ruth's final World Series, so I'm going and looking at numbers and where he ranks all time, and just the reason it came up is looking at games played in a single World Series, and I guess in the Negro Leagues, I want to say it was like a best of 11 because I'm looking at, and it looks like the 1926 Negro League World Series went 11 games, is where I'm basing that off of. But you look at Babe Ruth's numbers. He played in 10 World Series, which is a pretty staggering number in and of itself. 
won seven championships, three with the Red Sox and four with the Yankees. Began his career in Boston as a pitcher, did not pitch in that first 1915 World Series, and then did in 16 and 18 before going the batting route the rest of the way. And so in 41 World Series games from 1915 all the way through this 1932 season, Babe Ruth batted 326 in his World Series career with a 470 on base percentage, slugged 744, hit 15 home runs, drove in 33 runs. The 15 home runs that he hit are second most all-time in World Series history in just 167 plate appearances, which is utterly terrifying. His 33 runs driven in are the fourth most in World Series history. Drew 33 walks, which second most in World Series history. So his slugging percentage of Babe Ruth, that 744 percentage is the ninth best mark all-time and in the most plate appearances of anybody in the top 10 by a pretty significant margin very interesting stuff as far as his numbers but to wrap up this discussion i guess we should judge for ourselves uh you can go first did he do it did babe ruth call it his shots you know we see it in movies where they're talking about it's like in major league we see a uh, tom berenger's character calling a shot we see uh squints always calling a shot in the sandlot i mean that's how legendary this moment is like even at the beginning of sandlot if the description of the event is entirely accurate you know it still is all part of what makes babe ruth such a legend and you know you can watch the beginning of that movie after you listen to this podcast and find out just how inaccurate that is but i'm rambling on lucas do you think the babe called his shot i mean it's hard to know for sure obviously but it's given the mystique surrounding it and the way it blew up and just the probability of it all i'm inclined to say no just because the odds of it happening it just there's no way right so here's what i have to say about the subject and i don't know maybe it's not as clean cut as yours but i'm gonna take a stab at it i mean Several years ago, I would have just said, yeah, he definitely called his shot because, you know, he's Babe Ruth, and that's what he did. But, you know, given everything that was building up to it, all the cat calls from both the Cubs players and the Cubs fans, and, you know, he was just lying in the weeds waiting to make a mark somehow. We see it so many times in baseball history where a player is really getting insulted and people are just not respecting him at all. And then he shuts everyone up because he comes through in a big moment, whether that's a home run or just a big hit in the clutch. We know that he pointed twice during that at bat, a couple of times. That's a fact. But I don't want to say that he necessarily pointed to call his shot, but I do think that he intended to do something big when the time was right. Because, you know, we're talking about a tie game right here, and people are just waiting for Root to screw up just so they can get on his case more. So I'm sure he intended to hit a home run if he got a good pitch to hit, but I don't think that he intended to just point out 
where exactly he was going to hit the ball because you really can't predict where a baseball is going to land. I mean, as much of a giant and as much of a legend as Ruth was, you can't really expect me to believe that he knew exactly where he was going to hit and how far he was going to hit it. So I think he intended to hit a home run. He probably just did not accurately predict where in his mind. But because the sports writers ran with the story, he ended up running with that story, you know, that whole speech, right? We said, I'm going to hit the next pitch ball right past the flagpole. Well, the good Lord must have been with me. I'm pretty sure at that point, you know, he was he fully bought into his own legend and he was just telling what people wanted to hear. And I think a lot of people just wanted to hear him confirm this big, moment in baseball history because if he had said no I didn't call my shot he would have let people down and Babe Ruth was not about letting people down he really soaked into his celebrity we saw him in the pride of the Yankees after Lou Gehrig died and he just like he had admirers everywhere and the last thing he ever wanted to do was just disappoint people and say you know don't believe any of this stuff if anything he adds to his own legend by playing that up so I know it's a long-winded answer, but no, I don't think he actually called his shot, but I do think he intended to do something big at that moment. I think that's fair. And I like the point of him hamming it up after the fact, because if he, after the game, is just like, no, it's just pure coincidence, would we be talking about this 90 years later? I don't know the answer to that for sure. But yeah, 100%, like, the timing of everything... And the pure execution of it, because hitting a baseball is hard. Especially if you're trying to hit one thrown by a major league pitcher, doesn't matter the era. Even in 1932, like, I haven't played organized baseball. I wouldn't be able to hit a baseball thrown by, you know, Charlie Root in 1932. I would have looked silly. So I would agree, I think, with the notion of he intended to make a statement if he could. The fact that he just so happened to kind of point in the direction of center field and then happened to get the pitch to hit to be able to launch it 500 feet that way. I had said it's kind of a coincidence where everything was where I don't think he necessarily intended to like call his shot to that degree of accuracy but the fact that it just so happened to work out is part of what makes this so legendary. So, again, all we have as far as actual video is that 16mm home movie that we mentioned earlier where he's just pointing quickly a couple of times. So unless there's another angle on this that's tucked away in somebody's basement or attic, I don't think we're ever going to know for sure if he actually called his shot. But hey, it adds to the mystique that the babe holds even now. So let us get off of this. We've already talked about it a lot and just take a look ahead at our 1933 episode. We are going to see another New York team in the World Series, albeit without the familiar manager. And we get another appearance by a team that doesn't have a lot of postseason history as far as success. Well, I guess back then this was the only postseason, so like no postseason, or at least not a lot of postseason success. So, Lucas, this is going to be tough to top, but do you think we can tackle this 1933 series in our next episode? 
Well, we'll have a lot less to unpack, at least in theory, with this one. But in terms of can we follow this up successfully, tune in next week to find out. Yes. So for Lucas Mitchell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1932 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe as well. If I live to edit this episode, we'll see you next time.